0: Well, it's good to be uh, with you all again on this uh, interestingly cold and frosty morning. <laughs> it's uh, really beautiful driving down from Chelmsford this morning. It's just, uh, I don't know, it's just there's something about creation in all its different aspects. And uh, to see that frost thick on the trees and on the hedges was uh, really very beautiful. Okay, we're looking at joy this morning. Joy is one of those slippery words, I think. Uh, we'll touch on that again in a moment. But um, the key verses are Luke 2, verses 10 and 11. But I think just to give it the context, we'll, we'll read the whole of um, the first 12 verses of Luke's Gospel. Uh, I A mean, very familiar story, but uh, still worth looking at again. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Saviour has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. I wonder if we use the word joy, what immediately springs to your mind. Uh, I I looked at a number of uh, dictionary definitions, and they all sort of majored somewhere on feeling or emotion. Uh, A feeling which comes when something significant has happened, when a great event has taken place, uh, or an emotion that uh, occurs when something good has happened to us. I I think, and we'll see this as we go through, but I, I think we will see that Christian joy goes a bit deeper than that. It's not just a nice sort of, happy feeling that uh, we get when something happens. It's, it's something, I think, a little bit more profound than that. And there, There's a real sort of background to joy in the Old Testament. Um, you get joy in creation, and we've just touched on creation, and the, and the sense of all the variety there. And many of the Psalms just look at what God has done, and they say, wow! Uh, and, and they rejoice in that. There's rejoicing in God's salvation, both in terms of what he does getting Israel out of Egypt to the Exodus, what he does getting Israel back into uh, Judea after the exile in Babylon. There's this constant sense of joy at what uh, God has done. There's joy in God's presence. Time and time again in the Old Testament, when God's people come together to worship, there's a sense there of joy. So there's a, there's a rich Old Testament background there. But we're more concerned with the way in which some of that turns into fulfilment. And we're looking, firstly, at joy at the coming of Jesus. And what comes out again and again here is that this is the culmination of all that God had planned and was working out in the Old Testament all the promise, and we'll, we'll touch on this again later on, but all the promise there has now come to fulfilment. So all those hints of joy, joy in creation, joy in salvation, joy in the presence of God, they've all now realised in a much fuller and greater way than they ever were uh, in the Old Testament with, with the coming of Jesus. Uh, there's a lot of joy, actually, in, in, in chapter 1. Even before we get into chapter 2, go back into chapter 1, verse 14. (coughs) Uh, This is uh, the angel Gabriel talking to Zechariah and saying, you can have a son, he will be a joy and a a delight to you. Uh, And then Mary, in the early months of her pregnancy, goes to visit uh, Elizabeth. Uh, And Elizabeth says, As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Uh, You've got it again in um, verse 47, when Mary herself says, My spirit rejoices in God my Saviour. And uh, again in verse uh, 58, uh, the Lord had shown Elizabeth great mercy and they shared her joy so around this birth of Jesus joy is one of those characteristic things and then the angel arrives and says to the shepherds in the field you know what good news and good news is a word which is used um, in secular uses just for the the birth of a king or, or the news of a victory But good news and this good news brings great joy for all the people. So here, in the coming of Jesus, to these rather startled shepherds out in the fields, there is this whole sense of good news. Now, what is that center around? Well, if you look at verse 11, you see, there, there are three things that the angel says to them. The first thing is that a saviour is coming. Uh, and that's where we see all that Old Testament stuff just being sort of picked up and, and and moved on into something new. God had delivered his people from Egypt. God had brought them back from Babylon. But now God is doing something much deeper and much more significant for all people in terms of, well, we sang about it earlier on uh, in... Um, when I was in the pit, you came and rescued me. And that, that's the whole point of salvation. There we are, we're struggling, we're suffering, we're away from God, we're separated from God, and God breaks in, uh, and God saves us and draws us back into a new relationship with himself. And, and that's the key to this, that joy comes because we now find ourselves in a new relationship with God. And that's something worth celebrating. Joy has always got that S aspect of celebration around it. So, here is salvation coming. But the second thing that um, the angel says to those shepherds is that uh, he's the Messiah. Uh, now, that perhaps doesn't mean quite as much to us as it would have meant to uh, any Jew in the, this sort of, well, I was going to say the first century, but they didn't know it was the first century then, um, To to them, this encapsulated all those Old Testament promises. Uh, Messiah, the anointed one, the coming king, the king in the line of David. Back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, there's this promise to David that there will never cease to be a descendant of his on the throne of Israel. And we know that from 587, when Jerusalem was sacked by the Babylonians, there was no king uh, in Israel. And yet that promise to David in 2 Samuel 7 still stands. And here all that longing of the Jews for those six centuries now comes to fulfilment. There is now a new king on the throne of David. It's not going to happen quite the way they expected but here is a new king coming. And that's what Messiah captures. It's the one who's been anointed just as David was anointed by Samuel. So here is Jesus, the, the Messiah, the anointed one, the one who had been promised all the way through. And, and then thirdly, um, he's the Lord. And this again draws up all sorts of images for these people. I, I guess the shepherds didn't fully get it, but uh, Luke's readers, uh, at least some of them would have got it. Um, Right the way through the Old Testament, the, the, uh, you've, you've, you'll, you'll see there, you, you'll be familiar with this, of course, but you get the Lord often printed in capitals in our Bibles. What that does is it represents the sort of the name which God revealed himself by uh, to Moses, back in Exodus chapter 3 at the burning bush. Uh, and it's it, the the Jews at some point decided this name was too sacred to pronounce. And so every time they read the scriptures and they came to this name, and we don't really know how it was pronounced. Older um, scholars pronounce it Jehovah. Um, Modern scholars tend to pronounce it Yahweh. It really consists of four letters in Hebrew. But every time they came to that, instead of reading that, they read the Lord. And that just carried through into the Greek translation of the Old Testament and, and into our Bibles as well. So, when you come to this word, the Lord, what that does to the reader is instantly to say, Aha! That takes me back into this Old Testament revelation of God a- and this name by which God is known. So, to, to say that Jesus is the Lord is not just making a, a, a nice um, statement uh, about... Um, Jesus being in charge of stuff. It's actually saying Jesus comes with the authority of God. Jesus is God. It's interesting that actually, struck up on the wall there, we have the whole encapsulated three things here. Uh, Jesus, which essentially means Saviour, it's the Greek form of the old Hebrew Yehoshua, uh, which is God saves. Uh, Christ, Greek version of Messiah, Lord. So it's all there as a constant sort of reminder of these three things that the angel reveals. So here is God coming to do something new. And this is a cause of great celebration. This is why it's the source of joy because right now God is breaking into the world in a new way. He's fulfilling his promises and he's going to do it through Jesus. Now Of course, we cannot fully separate uh, Jesus' birth from his life, from his death, from his resurrection. All of these are part of a piece in terms of what God is doing. Uh, And so when we come to the resurrection, you find there's a lot of joy there uh, around the resurrection. You find Jesus talked prior to that about his disciples suffering and sorrowing and mourning because he's been taken away from them. But he's coming back, and then their joy will be full. So here we have joy at the coming of Jesus because God is breaking in and is doing something totally new. But then the second thing is that joy is a central part of our Christian life. And that's a constant message in the New Testament. We are intended to be a people who are characterized by joy. You see it when people come to faith. Uh, you see it with uh, the Philippian jailer in Acts chapter 16. We're, we're told that he rejoiced with his family. You see it with Zacchaeus. When he meets Jesus, he rejoices. And whenever this coming to God takes place in an individual, there seems to be this sense of joy. Why? Because this new relationship takes place. I'm now in relationship with God and that leads to a sense of joy and uh, rejoicing. And then you get uh, Paul writing to these uh, Christians in Rome. And his desire for them is precisely that. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul longs for that's his desire and notice that it is tied up with trust and this is why I I think joy is much more than just an emotion joy sometimes becomes almost something that we choose to do choose to experience it's not just that it comes to us externally Uh, sometimes and we'll see this when we look at the next uh, topic But sometimes joy is something that uh, we hold on to because we trust in God. If our trust diminishes, then we may find that our joy diminishes. Or Peter, uh, in his first letter, though you have not seen him, that's Jesus, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of yourselves. You see see that? Filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. So Peter quite simply sees this uh, as a mark of the Christian life. As we reflect on what God has done for us, as we reflect on the new life that he's given to us, so inevitably we're full of joy. Because Without Him, there's no hope. With Him, there's every hope. So, there at the heart of this is this sense of uh, rejoicing in what God has done and rejoicing in the new relationship. And, and joy, of course, as I say, it's partly something that we choose to do, but it's also partly something which the Holy Spirit works out in us. Uh, there in Galatians 5, it's one of the fruits of the Spirit. And joy is often experienced uh, in the presence of pain. There's Paul, for instance, writing Philippians. Philippians is full of joy, and yet Paul is writing that letter from prison. And, And you wouldn't have thought that someone there, stuck in a damp cell somewhere, would be full of joy, but that's Paul's experience. And writing to the Colossians, again from prison, he says, I rejoice in the sufferings which I go through for you. That's Colossians one, twenty-four. Paul experiences this joy in the face of pain. Uh, and often, that seems to be a note in Scripture, that joy transcends our circumstances. And I think you find that in, in stories of Christians who've suffered for Jesus, that often they find that in that suffering there is a real sense of joy. When I was younger, and many of you, I guess, will identify with this, I grew up on the stories of Richard Verbrant. And Richard Verbrant, who was imprisoned for many years uh, for his faith, spoke about the deep joy which he experienced uh, at that point. Uh, Corrie ten Boom, another person I was sort of brought up with, Uh, in a concentration camp uh, in uh, the Second World War, speaks about the joy which she experienced in knowing Christ in those situations. Uh, And I think we often, and I guess many of us could testify to this, we often find that in those situations where things are really tough, we experience that joy of Christ which transcends those things. Perhaps the most classic expression of this is is back in the Old Testament, in Habakkuk. Habakkuk, uh, chapter 3, Habakkuk has this great vision of uh, God's glory, but he knows that uh, the Babylonians are coming. Uh, And he has this amazing expression of faith, and trust, and confidence. But joy is at the heart of it. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails, and the fields produce no food, Though there are no sheep in the sheepfold and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Saviour. Now, I think that's a staggering expression of confidence in God and a determination, whatever things look like, to actually go on rejoicing in God. Now, hey, I'm not pretending that's an easy thing to do. I am saying that actually, very often, joy is experienced in the face of um, suffering and pain. Joy-, joy is also, incidentally, experienced in the presence of temptation. Uh, James, uh, in his letter, says, "Count it all joy when you suffer various temptations and trials and tests." I remember when I was a sort of much younger and much more foolish than I am now. Um, my then-girlfriend was going through a rather tough time, uh, and I wrote her a little poem based on those verses in James and gave it to her. Um, not the wisest thing to have done under the circumstances, but then when we're young and uh, foolish, we do stupid and insensitive things. And quite frankly, I think when I'm old and foolish, uh, I continue to do insensitive things, but there you go. Uh, but nevertheless, these trials, these tests, says James, Count it all joy. But, just quickly, joy can be lost. David, in Psalm 51, says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. David's sin with Bathsheba, David's sin in getting Uriah killed, had led to that point where Nathan arrives and says, you know, you're the man. And David is full of remorse and David loses at that point. That joy of his salvation he says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. So sin can remove that sense of joy. But sometimes it goes anyway. Psalms 42 and 43 there's a, there's a man who, we don't know quite why he can't get to the temple to worship but he can't and Away from the temple, he remembers the joy and the festal shouts when he used to go to the temple. He remembers how great it was to rejoice in worship. And he says, why are you so downcast, my soul? And sometimes um, in moments of lowness or depression, we will lose that sense of joy. Sometimes, you know, we'll need our sisters and brothers to come alongside us and encourage us and help us with that sense of joy. So, let's just be honest with one another and say that we don't live the whole time as Christians on this massive, joyful high. There are days when we feel down. There are days when the joy isn't there. Um, Some of you will probably remember, as I do, uh, William Cooper's old hymn, uh, Oh, for a Closer Walk with God, in which he has this verse, Where is the blessedness I knew when first I saw the Lord? Where is the soul refreshing view of Jesus and his word? Now, Cooper was a guy who suffered enormously with depression. Um, Interestingly, his his great friend John Newton of Amazing Grace also struggled uh, with depression. Um, John Bunyan, who wrote his autobiography Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners uh, struggled with depression. And so do many believers today. And sometimes in the middle of that it's hard to hold on to the joy. And that's when the trust comes in. That's when it's not about the emotion, it's about saying, you know what, ultimately, deep down, I have confidence in God and in what he's doing. But then, joy as our ultimate destiny. And and this is where actually we touch on what Advent was originally about. We tend to see Advent as a sort of run-up to Christmas. But Advent in the church calendar was originally designed, and this gets reflected in some of the more liturgical churches. It, it was designed to help people reflect on the fact that not only had Jesus come, he was coming again. And so joy becomes the ultimate destiny which we have. Uh, Jesus, we're told in Hebrews 12, endured the cross. Why? How? for the joy set before him. We're back there with the pain thing again. In the middle of his pain, there's the joy of knowing that he will be reunited with the Father. So Jude, at the end of his little letter, can write, To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy to the only God our Saviour, be glory, majesty, power and authority, through Jesus Christ our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. So this is where we're headed. This is this is the goal. Jesus will return. And at that point, our joy will be complete. Rejoice insofar as you are sharing Christ's sufferings so that you may also be glad and shout for joy when his glory is revealed. We recognise that we live in a world that is full of pain. And yet, one day, that will end. One day, our struggles to be joyful will not be struggles anymore. There will be perfect joy in the eternal presence of God. Evil, uh, will be defeated. Uh, you get into Revelation, Revelation 18, you get this um, di- Babylon, which represents all that is evil and hostile to God in the world. Babylon is defeated, and there is this great song of praise which goes up. Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready and that's not simply about a victory celebration it's not simply about evil being defeated but it reminds us that we will then be with God forever that wedding feast of the Lamb ushers in an eternity in the presence of God the vision of Revelation 20 and 21 and 22 is essentially that that uh, the holy city, the Jerusalem, the bride of Christ comes to earth and God is with his people forever and that is the source of our ultimate joy so we have so much to praise God for in terms of where we are at the moment we have so much to praise God for in all he's done in our lives and is doing in our lives through the death and the resurrection of Jesus we have so much to rejoice in, in the knowledge that one day we shall know as we are known. One day we shall meet face to face. One day we shall enter into this eternal presence of God. So, this Christmas, let's rejoice again in all that God has done. Let's rejoice again in all that God is doing. And let's remember, in the words of Nehemiah, that the joy of the Lord is our strength let's pray Lord God we thank you that you sent Jesus to bring us joy because you sent Jesus to bring us back into a new relationship with yourself and we thank you so much that today we stand in that relationship and we can truly be a joyful people we want to pray that you will fill us with joy this Christmas, as we reflect again on the wonder of your love on the generosity of your grace just help us to rejoice in all of that may it be uh, a deep emotion but may it be more than an emotion may it be that confidence in the fact that we know that one day you will return that one day you will take us to yourself Lord we thank you that you desire that we might be a joyful people. Amen.